It's good to be with you, and uh, we are continuing our study in the book of 1 Timothy. We're going to be in chapter 4 today, so if you have your Bibles or your tablet or smartphone or whatever you've got, uh, open it to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we'll read together from God's Word. It says this, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times... Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set set the believers an example in speech in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And God bless the reading of his word. The word revolution. It's a strong word. It's a stirring word. A word that challenges the way things are or the way things have been. It's a word that incites the oppressed and beckons forth sometimes primal emotions, and moves sometimes even the most passive of individuals to action. Revolution is what so many are desiring right now in our world, in our country. We're on the verge of a presidential election here, and there are many who are longing for change. Some desire a return to the way things were. Others, a bold embrace of what could be. There are movements all around the world that are demanding and fighting and protesting and campaigning. The calls and cries for revolution, they're everywhere. Maybe you felt them. Maybe deep down inside, you find yourself longing for a type of revolution. You're discontent with the way things are. And somewhere deep inside your chest, pulse, rhythmic beats, calling for action. The cry for change, it's, it's fundamental 
to the human experience. Within the souls of each and every one of us, there's this sense in which we know something's not right. Something needs adjustment. Like Lennon and McCartney said, we all want to change the world. But what so many people fail to see is the change the world needs, it needs to take place on the inside of us before it can bring the change out there that we all long to see, that we're all looking for. Some of us know that we need to change. <laughs> we look in the mirror, or maybe after some strenuous activity, we realize that our, our waistline or our muscle tone needs some serious tuning up. But Paul says to Timothy that there is a revolution that's far more important that needs to happen in each and every one of us. Did you catch it? In verse 8, he writes this, While a bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul says, there's something that's going to benefit you far, far more than eating right and far, far more than taking this supplement or by doing this exercise routine. And it's going to have effects that last far, far longer. It's this thing called godliness. And so Paul tells Timothy, train yourself. Train yourself for godliness. It's a struggle. It takes effort, but don't all revolutions? To move away from the, the, the way things have been to the way things should be, that requires dedication and resolve and persistence and sometimes even force, doesn't it? Like fighting against the tide, it means using all that you have to break through and get to where you need to go. What I hope for this morning or whenever you're watching this, is that we will come to see that godliness is the most valuable, life-transforming, joy-inducing revolution there is. Godliness is worth the fight. What is godliness? Well, someone might say, well, it's a state of being godlike. And so you, you talk like God, you think like God, you look like God, you walk like God. Wait, does God walk? Isn't he spirit? The dictionary says that it's the quality of being devoutly religious. And so godliness is being pious, right? And that brings to my mind this picture of this guy with this very long beard and very fancy clothes, nose stuck up in the air, holding his hands just so, looking around saying, I'm better than you. I am a holy one. Is that what godliness is? Something just doesn't seem quite right about that. The word godliness or godly, it occurs 15 times in the New Testament. It occurs nine times in Paul's letters. Uh, excuse me, it occurs 13 times in Paul's letters. It occurs nine times just in this book alone, in 1 Timothy. So clearly, there's something very, very important to godliness when it comes to our study of 1 Timothy. And there's something very significant about godliness when it comes to fighting the good fight. The Greek word is eusebia, which in pagan literature, it means showing proper caution or proper fear 
or reverence or respect toward the gods. And such piety involved the offering of sacrifices or certain rituals um, to show that kind of respect and that kind of fear, that kind of honor, that kind of reverence. And it also meant honoring those individuals whom the gods had put in place. And so elders, masters, rulers, and in the order in which the gods put into place. So godliness, or to be godly, had to do with reverence and respect. In the Bible, it always refers to God. It's in reference to God. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The basic idea is this. If you're going to be a person that has a clue, who has even the most basic idea of how the world works, what your place is in it, how to make the most out of the life that you have, first and foremost... You know, you respect, you make decisions based on God. He's the fulcrum of your existence. He's the hub of your wheel. He's the center of your solar system around which all the planetary bodies of your life revolve. You know, some year, sometime before the year 1514, a Polish mathematician, astronomer, clergyman by the name of Nicholas Copernicus wrote a brief document, came to be known as the Commentariolus. And in that document, he outlined the radical idea that it is not the Earth that is the center of our solar system, it's the sun. And he proposed that we move away from a geocentric model to a heliocentric model of the solar system. And this is actually very, very important and beneficial because if you believe that the Earth is the center of the solar system, well, then the movement of all the other celestial bodies becomes mind-bogglingly complex. Yes, you might look up at the sky and you say, well, uh, that's not complex. I see the sun rise, the sun fall, the moon comes up, the moon comes down. That's a little bit more complicated, but it seems like everything's revolving around the sun. But the reality is that's the end of the cakewalk. When you start looking at Mars or Venus or trajectories of the other planets, things get very, very confusing as you, as you see these things spinning in these very odd ways. And what it results in is, is these head-spinning mind-crashing equations to figure out where these planets are going. Things just don't make, make good sense. There's a, a physics-based simulation program. If you were into that sort of thing, you probably know about it. It's called Universe Sandbox. And in this, this, this program, you're able to create hypothetical models of the solar system. And so you can actually set it so that the Earth is the center of the solar system. And what you'll find is if you let it play out, you're going to see the patterns of these planets. The sun will go around the Earth, and the moon will do its thing as well. But then when you start looking at the other planets, you see them spinning out into these weird elliptical motions, and it becomes very confusing, seems very, very chaotic. But if you shift it, Back to where the sun is in the center, everything falls into place. You see everything spinning around intentionally, and it's all revolving around the sun. All of a sudden, you realize there's order here. 
this makes sense. There's predictability. Everything revolves around the sun. The shift in that understanding from the earth being the center to the sun being the center, that's called the Copernican Revolution. You've probably heard of it before. It's a revolution in two senses. One, because it's a dramatic shift in scientific understanding. It's a, it's a revolution in scientific thought. Two, at its core, it's about the revolution of bodies around a central point. It's about the orderly revolving of planets around one body that makes them, that gives them order and actually makes life on earth possible. My friends, there's no doubt in my mind that the one who designed the universe and our solar system set the planets in motion in such a way to give us a picture of how everything created, especially humanity, is to relate to God himself. And that relationship is what godliness is all about. At their core, godly people are God-fearing people. They're God-oriented people. They're people whose worldview and life focus has undergone a, a revolution and now revolves around God himself. If you've placed your trust in Jesus, then you've experienced that revolution. That, that outdated, ill-informed idea that the world revolves around you, <laughs> that's been left in the dust, and it's been exchanged for this earth-shattering, life-informing reality that God is the one uh, that everything else revolves around. It's amazing. Once you were lost in darkness, now you've been brought into his glorious light. Once life just seemed to be spinning randomly out of control, now you have a clearer understanding of how things work, the way things are, and what your place is in all of this. Once the reason for your existence, it was, it was cloudy. It was, it was without meaning. Now you know your purpose and that you have a hope and a future. Once pain and suffering brought discouragement and, and even maybe a sense of futility. And now you're beginning to see how God is using all of that to bring himself glory and good to everyone who looks to him. Once maybe you thought that money and relationships, experiences or accomplishments in this life were going to bring you happiness, but now you know that joy and fulfillment are things that could only ever be found in God. That's a really good thing. This is the revolution that everyone needs. Now, if you haven't had that revolution, if you haven't yet placed your trust in Christ and, 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 and God has not replaced you as the center of your universe, of your solar system, that's something that needs to happen and happen now. I, I want to urge you in the, the most significant way that I can to acknowledge who you are, acknowledge who God is, to say, 
I am a person who has fallen short of God's perfect standards. I'm a person who deserves punishment. That's what the Bible says. But I'm a person whom God sent Jesus Christ for out of his great love that Jesus Christ might take the punishment that you and I deserved on himself on the cross. And there he paid for it with his life. That by trusting in him, your sin might be washed clean. You might have your relationship with God restored. And God might once again come in and be the center of your life, of your solar system, bringing order and clarity and peace and joy and hope in a way that you've never known before. Would you do that? You confess your need for him, place your trust in him, and embrace all that he has to offer. That's a good thing. Christians, if you've already had that revolution take place, the challenge for you now is staying there. It's staying there. The challenge is keeping God at the center of your life and ordering everything you think, everything you say, everything that you do, everything you have, every responsibility that is on your shoulders, putting that in proper relationship to him. The challenge is godliness. It's a perpetual revolution against the archaic beliefs of this world and a continual aligning of your life to God. That's godliness. And the church in Ephesus was experiencing that struggle. God at the center was becoming a difficult thing. And we've mentioned before that Paul brings it up again here in chapter 4 that there were people who were introducing bad, toxic ideas into the church. And notice the source of those ideas. Paul mentions them. Their origin is deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now, that may sound fantastic in your mind, but we really have to remember how the Bible looks at reality here. Paul says this in Ephesians 6.12. Maybe you were with us for our study in Ephesians a few years ago. He says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is a cosmic struggle. The battle for the center of your solar system, the solar system of your life, that is a cosmic battle. Before anything else, it's a spiritual battle, and yet it's played out in the physical world. Paul writes in verse 2 that these bad ideas, they're being brought into the church by people, people who he calls insincere liars whose consciences have been seared. These are people who pretend to be godly, but really they're serving somebody else. They might claim to be God-centered, but the things that they are teaching are actually designed to pull God out of the center of the lives of others. Their consciences are so seared, so fried, so callous, they don't even feel guilt or remorse for leading people astray or causing them to get all involved in speculations and controversies. Remember chapter one? Divisions bubbling up in the church because of these ideas. Do you see how warped this is? It's awful. 
what God has created and the way he designed it to work is good. It's more than good. It's, it's great. It's, it's, it's awesome. The things that God has made are useful. They're beneficial. They're enjoyable. But when you take God out of the picture, then things begin to spiral out of whack, out of control. Marriage, the covenant relationship that God intended, God designed for one woman and one man, that's eventually seen to be something that's avoided. Uh, or, or it's even sinful. Whereas in our day, maybe it's redefined. And now it includes all sorts of different things that it never was intended to include. Take food. Food God created to sustain us and for us to enjoy. You ever, you ever just eaten food and you just go, wow, this is amazing. It, but when you take God out of the picture, it becomes something to be worshipped itself, doesn't it? It absolutely does. In the case of the Ephesians, it was something that was to be avoided. Maybe this was because of the influence of the Essenes, that Jewish sect that believed that denying physical pleasure was the path to being more spiritual. That's a possibility. But for them, food was something we got to get rid of because it brings us physical pleasure, and that's not a spiritual thing. What about physical fitness? Whereas God designed our bodies to be healthy and fit, to be obedient to him, to give him glory, and actually bring good to the world around us, it's been transformed into this, this self-worship kind of thing. It's about self-worship. It's about self-superiority. And the very sad thing is, ultimately, it's a source of discouragement because it just doesn't last. Beauty, fitness... You can have them for a while, and then they're gone. Not something you want to place your hope in. We could go on and on. Commerce turns to greed. Children turn into idols or obstacles to personal happiness. The arts become things that worship and celebrate the created rather than the creator. Joy turns from being something that's constant because it's grounded in the unchanging goodness of God into something that's fleeting and inconsistent and unattainable. It's not good. Any distortion of what God has made and separating God out from anything and the proper relationship that it's supposed to have to himself, that's not good. Paul writes this in verse 4. For everything God create, or everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. What God made is good. We should embrace it. We should receive it. We should actually even enjoy it. But notice what Paul says here. He says it has to do with thanksgiving. It needs to be received with thanksgiving. That means we need to recognize where it came from. Who made it? Who made it good? And we need to allow it to point us to who made it. It needs to point to God. Again, we see that God needs to be the center of our solar system. Why is this so important? It's so important because goodness, the goodness of the things that God has made is dependent on their connection with two things. His truth, his word, Paul writes, and it's 
needs to be connected to God himself, communication with God himself, and that's prayer. Paul says that's what makes them holy. In other words, when things like marriage or food are experienced um, in line with God's truth and in conjunction to a relationship with him, then they can be enjoyed as God intended them to be enjoyed. You can, you can receive the maximum pleasure from them. Godliness is essential to the good life. It's a revolution worth fighting for. And my question for all of us is this. Are we fighting for godliness? Or have we fallen into that trap of trying to enjoy life apart from God? If it's the latter, then, then we're never going to experience the good that God created as God intended it to be enjoyed. The planets are going to be misaligned. Things are, are bound to get confusing, to get complicated, even corrosive. And ultimately, you will have exchanged the glory and goodness of God for the gimmicks of demons. What we see in verse, verses 6 through 16 is a passionate plea for Timothy to lead the church in fighting the good fight for godliness. In verse 6, he says, being a good servant of Jesus, that means sharing these truths with the Christians. Do you want that well done, good and faithful servant? Well, you can have that if you are one of those people that bring this truth to others around you. You're pointing people to God. They're enjoying this, they're involved in that, they're caught up in this revolution or that, um, that thing over there, and you say, no, 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 you need to come back to God being the center of your solar system. Godliness is what you need, and that will make you a good servant of Jesus. In verses 7 through 10, he tells Timothy that godliness has value beyond anything else, before, beyond any other pursuit. It's, it's worth working for. It's worth striving for. He says, forget about all those other silly distortions of reality. God is the center. He's the one who needs to be revered, respected, and obeyed. And that's going to benefit your life in tremendous ways. Then he says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. He writes in verse 9, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He says this time and time again throughout the letter to, of 1 Timothy. There are certain things, certain takeaways he wants you to get. And this idea of godliness being so valuable is one of them. It's deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, he says, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people especially those who believe. The pursuit and fight for godliness, for Christians, it should come natural. It should actually be kind of a no-brainer. Think about this. If you've placed your trust in Jesus so that your relationship with God has been restored, 
then doesn't it make sense that now that you've been made right with God, you should run towards him with everything that you've got, with a gusto, like nothing else? Shouldn't we now be doing everything that we can to bring every planet of our life, every aspect of our lives into proper alignment with him? Doesn't it just make sense? In verse 11, Paul commands Timothy, command and teach these things. This is your job, Timothy, Go do it. In verse 12, he says, don't let anyone think down on you because you're young. Apparently, there were some people in the Ephesian church that were older than Timothy. Maybe they thought they were wiser than Timothy. Even so, Timothy was to set the example for them in the way that he talked, in the way that he acted, in the way, in his love, in his faith, in his relentless devotion to purity. Timothy's life, it was to be a model solar system for them to pattern their lives after. It didn't matter how old he was. They could look and see the difference that it makes to have your life centered on God. They were to see that in Timothy himself. That's one of the things that's absolutely critical for Timothy as he fought the good fight. The way that you live let it be an example. There was another thing as well. We find it in the summary Paul gives in verse 16. He says, keep a close watch on yourself. Okay, your example, that really makes a difference here. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Two things, your example and what you're teaching. Are you teaching truth, and are you living truth? As we mentioned before, ideas matter. Ideas have consequences. And what Timothy taught the church in Ephesus, that was critical. So critical. So Paul said, devote yourself to it. Devote yourself to the reading of Scripture, to exhortation, that is, to the urging of people on in their faith. Encourage them. uh, Devote yourself to teaching. Practice these things, he says. Immerse yourself in these things. This is a fight worth fighting. What are you fighting for? What's the revolution that you've gotten behind? There are a lot of revolutions out there. Fitness, politics, healthcare, education, social reform, home improvement. Maybe yours just has to do with life in your home. Maybe it's your family, your relationship with your children, with a brother or sister, maybe a parent, maybe your spouse. Those are good. We need revolution all over the place, don't we? We absolutely do. But there's one revolution that is far more important and must come before all the others. Godliness is the most valuable, life-transforming, joy-inducing revolution there is. Does your pursuit of godliness... Does it cause you to devotedly fill your mind with God's word, with his truth? 
If you're going to align the planets properly, you need to know how God designed it. And just like it was so important for Timothy to devote himself to the teaching of God's word, the right teaching is so important for you. If you want your life to revolve around the center it was made for, you need to have God's word in your mind, on the brain, all the time. Does it move you to fall on your knees, to consume your time as you pray, as you have that direct communication? And I'm not just talking about the times right before bed or right before a meal, but I'm talking throughout the day. If God is the center of our lives, then shouldn't he be the one that we're talking to, even as we're talking to others? Even as we're writing those proposals or swinging a hammer or taking care of our children, shouldn't God be someone that we're talking to all the time? Is it where you devote your strength, your, your skill, all your other resources? Your, your godliness is so important. God being the center of your life is so important that even the way you spend your money shows that that is the most important thing in your life. If your answer is no to these things, then perhaps you're fighting for the wrong cause or a cause that is less important, less significant. Never forget, godliness is worth the fight. Long live the revolution. Let's pray. Lord, we, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for breaking into time and space, breaking into history, breaking into our world, Lord, so that we, we might be saved from this futile, archaic way of thinking that we are the most important thing or something, some, some car or whatever house or whatever other thing that we place in the center of our solar system, Lord. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ that we might be washed clean, forgiven, and have a restored relationship with you so that you, the greatest individual in all that there is and the one and only source of fulfillment and satisfaction and happiness and joy and peace and hope, that that could once again, that you could once again be the center of our lives. Lord, we love you. We thank you for that. If there are some listening to this, watching this even now, Lord, who do not know you, I pray, God, that you would break into their lives. Make yourself known to them and lead them to confess their sin, to embrace Jesus Christ, to trust wholly in him and have their lives experience a revolution where you become the center and change everything. Lord, for the rest of us, Lord, it is so easy for us to get distracted, to wander off, to focus our attention on other things. Lord, help us in this fight. May we devote ourselves to the good fight for godliness and make you our number one priority, for that's where true life is found. We love you, Lord. I pray your blessing upon those who are listening and watching. Lead them to yourself, Lord. Build us up and give us the hope that we need, even in these desperate times we live in. We love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.